Hello, acquired LPs. Well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2, Quarter. Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search Guidance or Market Outlook. Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mention based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature along you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout quarters. Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R, no E, Q-U-A-R-T-R dot com slash acquired. Or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the Quarter team. Our thanks to Quarter. Now, as we dive in here, please remember this is not investment advice. Do your own research. This is for entertainment and informational purposes only. And uh, some folks on the show or us, uh, David and I may have uh, positions in some of the companies we discuss. All right, with that, on to the show. Well, hello, acquired LPs. David and I are very excited to welcome Brad Slingerland and John Bathgate from NZS Capital here today. Welcome, Brad and John. Hey, guys. Thanks for uh, having us back on. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, well, I want to, maybe before we dive into our conversation, just just do some quick intros so folks have background um, on, on you a little bit. So Brad, do I have it right? You co-founded NZS with Brinton, who was previously on the show with John. Uh, that's right. Yeah, we started NZS Capital in uh, 2019. Great. And you seem to be the writer of the group. You publish a ton of content. I think on top of the white papers that we've talked about, both on, on the show and on Twitter, do you do your newsletter once a week? Yeah, so I... In terms of writing, um, everybody in the group writes a lot. We're sort of a writing organization. Um, I think Brenton and I have produced a lot of the white papers over the years, going back to 10 years ago, and all those are we, we make public whenever we write something and put it up on, on the website, and those are all available. And then I, I spend most of my writing time on the weekly newsletter, which goes out uh, Sunday mornings, which is sort of just a rambling look at 
a lot of things, you know, it's called stuff I thought about last week. And that's, that's sort of a fairly, fairly accurate description of what, what goes into <laughs> it. So such a great name. I love it. And how, um, for folks who didn't hear our previous episode, what is NZS and how would you describe it? Yeah, NZS Capital. So we're public stock market investors. Um, Brenton and I uh, worked together since 2003 at our prior firm. Um, uh, that was a company that I started at in, in 1998 as a summer intern and was there for 20 years. Um, Brent and I subsequently left and uh, formed NZS Capital and then had a couple of our uh, favorite team members, John um, and and Joe as well, uh, join us uh, in 2020, beginning of 2020. And we launched our um, public market investment strategies uh, at the very end of 2019, beginning of, of 2020. And those are targeted mostly at institutional investors. Uh, so big insurance companies, endowments, um, pension plans, sovereign wealth funds, and then also uh, for outside of the U.S. investors, we have a fund for uh, retail investors as well. That's great. Uh, cool. And then last thing on your background, I saw you did your undergrad in astrophysics. How did you end up doing this after studying astrophysics? Yeah, I, I, so astrophysics is certainly a hobby and something I'm not smart enough to have pursued professionally um, or to go get a PhD or, or anything like that in. Um, I do really enjoy it. I My, my education was in economics um, and astrophysics, but I was always mostly passionate about the stock market going all the way back to, to middle school um, and started working, you know, interning during college with, with, a, with a large investment firm in Denver. And so, you know, what I like about having just having two different analytic analytical frameworks to use. And so you've got sort of this sort of very scientific, rigorous, uh, you know, scientific method, test the hypothesis and, and uh, try and disprove it. Uh, and then, and then just trying to marry that with other, you know, mental models around the world. So that's sort of the benefit it brings to the, to this, you know, looking at investing in businesses, but it's mostly just a, a hobby. <laughs> Charlie Munger would be proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> and John, switching over to you, you, were you a math undergrad? Uh, yeah, yeah, I was math. So, uh, I actually went into, um, undergrad, um, studying economics, similar mindset as Brad. I think I wanted to, um, I knew I wanted to go into investing. I had just been obsessed with markets since, um, I was like in fifth grade and then I got to, uh, undergrad and, and got into econ and I honestly just sucked at it. I was just terrible. And so, um, I was taking math on the side, um, and just stuck with it, um, which was Wait, you were better then. at math than econ, econ is like <laughs> easy math. Like. Yeah. It's counterintuitive. Right. Um, <laughs> but I, I just loved it. It was just kind of like second nature to me. Um, and so I did, there were kind of business school classes at, uh, I went to Boston college and there's an undergraduate business school there. And so I did take kind of like financial accounting and some basics, but I basically came out of undergrad, not really knowing how to you know analyze a stock and, and things like that. And then when I interviewed at our previous firm and, 2007, um, I had to learn it all on the fly, you know, which I mean, honestly, the, the kind of building spreadsheets and stuff like that's the easy part. The business analysis is the fun part and the, the hard part. So, um, that was kind of how I got into the, uh, the industry. And then just kind of a, a fun fact is I, I started at our previous firm in March of 2008. Like my first day in the industry was the day that Bear Stearns announced oh, that they were yes. going to sell for $2 a share to JP Morgan, which was like, I think kind of the, um, 
holy smokes moment of the uh, of the financial crisis. And then I've only switched jobs once in my career, which was to come over to NCS in early March of 2020, the week before the pandemic really took hold. And so um, I started at NCS in like a crazy bear market also. And so um, hopefully I can stay at NCS for a long time because this bear market <laughs> thing is exhausting. All right, so you got you to gotta let the whole acquired community know whenever you're you know switching <laughs> careers next because yes, then we can exactly. just, that is when you short, <laughs> not now right like you yeah, know <laughs> that's how it feels speaking of what yeah. i mean we were talking before the episode the reason we wanted to do this with you guys is uh from the first episode we did with ncs like your whole way of using complexity theory to think about investing and in companies and markets is fascinating i love it so many of our listeners loved it and we thought because it's so different from everything else we've heard Let's talk to you guys about what is what is going on right now here in January, late January 2022, as uh, markets are different than they were a month ago. And let me tee up what David means by right now. So we're recording this at 9 a.m. Pacific on January 27th. Right now, the S&P year to date is down about nine and a half percent. Uh, well, probably rebounded a little bit this morning. Uh, and the NASDAQ, which everyone knows is more, more tech focused, down about 15 percent. So uh, quite a start to uh, 2022 after a hell of a run in 2020 and 2021. So by the time you hear this, who knows? Because it seems like every cycle in every part of business has gotten shorter and shorter. But um, that that is where we are today. So Brad, maybe let's start with you. Um, this is an enormous question, so you can choose to answer however you'd like. But what is going on and how did we get here? Yeah, yeah. So I, I want to go all the way back uh, a million years in time, but we probably could. Uh, around, this is acquired so around, around, around the, uh, the the evolution of human psychology. But the um, no, I mean, just to to not go quite back that far. I mean, obviously, we had the, the pandemic started. We're coming up on t- two years on that. Uh, there was this t- initial fear that John referenced. I think everybody pr- probably remembers it. Although it does feel like a lifetime ago. And then this just unleashing of incredible coordinated global economic stimulus, both fiscal and, and monetary in form of low rates. And, you know, here in the U.S., literally checks being sent to people. Um, and there was this period of, you know, uncertainty in 2020 that sort of just exploded into this period of spending in 2021. And so you look at consumer spending 2021 over 2019 and it's like this incredible like 18 percent more i think is the the recent commerce department data for the for the u.s and it's like that's not not versus 2020 but versus like pre-pandemic levels there's just all this money and the where we're spending it where we've spent it as consumers has been in different places so instead of going on vacation we've been fixing up our houses and so it's caused all this uh sort of acute demand for a lot of things and then not demand for these other things. And the economy just can't, it just can't turn. We're so global. We've been on this sort of 30 year globalization trend where the supply chain is getting more spread out and, and in a lot of ways more fragile and you just can't get your hands on things. And so this, this huge burst in demand last year caused this, this big pickup in inflation. I think the, what are the latest numbers are six or 7%. And some of it's transitory. Some of it is, is, maybe a little bit structural and we can come back to that. And now the governments are saying, okay, well, we gave everybody way too much money. You know, we have way too much stimulus out there in the economy and we're going to reel it back in. And the main tool they have to do that is to, to raise interest rates. So they're signaling raising, you know, interest rates, um, you know, f- depending on how you want to read the tea leaves, maybe four times 
when they're raising interest rates, a thing I haven't seen is obviously they've been taking on more and more on their balance sheet every month. They've been buying, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in assets. And I think that's tapering. Is there any, have they ever announced any plan to like start shrinking the balance sheet of the Fed along with these interest rate raises? Yeah, I think that ultimately the Fed would like to stop the experiment of running a massive balance sheet. Um, so I think there's a lot of questions and uncertainty around how that plays out. And so you end up with this, this scenario where there's this, we know rates are going up and then there's this tension in the market between, in the stock market between people who think this is appropriate, inflation is is the root of all evil and it's structural and it's here to last and we've got to just kill it. And the people who think like, well, actually the economy is quite fragile. <laughs> We're still in a pandemic. Um, people are still sick. Um, uh, th- there's a lot of things going on. And if we sort of sh- just all of a sudden just hoover all of the money back out as quickly as possible, then that's probably as bad as the as what the situation was to, to begin with. And so the market like always wants to find some level of homeostasis. I sort of view it as like a, you know, one of the things we learned from complex adaptive systems is to really think biologically rather than computationally, which is the way a lot of market participants think. And so if we think about homeostasis, like here in our, our body, we're trying to constantly maintain our temperature right around, you know, 98.6 degrees. And we're trying to make sure we're not hungry and then we get enough sleep at night. And, that you know, all, all of these things that we're trying to make, you know, our body's regulating often without us knowing. And the market's also trying to do this. It's trying to kind of come to a consensus on what do we think interest rates are going to be a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now? What do we think inflation is going to be? What do we think? profit margins are going to be? What do we think is going to happen in emerging market growth versus developed market growth? And most of the time, you can never reach equilibrium or homeostasis in a complex adaptive system. Um, You can in a biological closed system like a human body. But most of the time, it's constantly being perturbed. And so like this idea of disequilibrium is the equilibrium is is a concept from Brian Arthur, who who, has sort of written um, I think yeah. a lot of the great texts, you know, complexity economics, and wrote the original paper compounding on compounding and network effects, increasing returns, right? Sorry, increasing returns, not network effects. And so uh, the, the market, in particular, right now, is struggling to find this homeostasis point. So these extreme bouts of volatility uh, up, up and down, because there's this the, the one thing the market needs to come to some so- sort of agreement on is what is the discount rate. What are interest rates? You know, what should people use as their hurdle rate for the next one, three, five, ten years? And right now, the market's really there's these two camps that are disagreeing on it. I think that's what creates this tension, this sort of bouncing back and forth between these two equilibriums in the market. And so that started in March of uh, 2021. Actually, it was the first time uh, hmm. rates started to go up, growth stocks started to come down, and you can just see this sort of anti-correlation. Uh, over the last uh, 10 months now of rates going up, growth stocks coming down, and then we're in this extreme phase right now. And it's interesting if you look back, I've been through a few rate hike cycles um, in the market over the last 24 years now, I guess. There does tend to be this initial difficulty in finding an equilibrium, fear over high growth, uh, high multiple stocks, stocks that may not have current earnings, but are sort of bank, people are banking on earnings in the future. But then what happens is people tend to gravitate back toward, towards the growth assets because they are the assets that are going to create the most value long term. And so we're in this initial period of finding equilibrium or something as close to equilibrium as we can get. And then I would expect this to be no different from prior 
cycles mm. where uh, unless there's something structural that we're not aware of yet, that you know the people would be gravitating back toward growth growth assets. So, so is another way to put that, just to make sure I'm understanding it, that for these companies without earnings but have high growth that got tremendous multiple expansion by public market investors over the last you know several years, uh, that was the first place where investors got scared and you know were were selling and created all this downward compression on the multiples and so these these prices dropped like crazy of these high growth you know uh, currently unprofitable or currently not cash generating tech companies so those get sort of whacked the hardest first but you're saying ultimately if that's where the growth is in terms of the companies that will become large and profitable in the future then that's a place also where people there's there's flight back there after the sort of exhale of okay we're safe yeah, that, that tends to be what happens. You know, one, one of the things we learn from complex adaptive systems is we can't predict the future. So I'm, so when I'm, always, <laughs> I'm always sort of on thin ice when I say this happened in the past and so it might happen in the future. But I don't see any particular reason why at the right sort of equilibrium point, these growth assets aren't, again, more attractive. And I think, you know, we, we, everybody should have their own sort of way of managing a portfolio of, of investments, whether it's in public markets or real estate or whatever you do. And um, what we do is we balance two two types of investments that we call resilience and optionality, and we're able to shift back and forth. And so in times of, uh, you know, volatility, like today, we sort of like to say, and, and I'm sort of quoting Brenton here, but um, we don't view volatility as risk, we view it as opportunity. And so, you know, come back to whatever the basics of your own investment strategy are, everyone's, it's a very personal thing for everybody. And say, what are the two maybe different types of businesses that I own and where should I be shifting the portfolio today? And so for us, that would be as the market is volatile, uh, moving out of our our more resilient growth businesses into our more optional growth businesses. Maybe just to add... um a few quick points to that. Uh, I mean, one, one thing I was thinking about is as Britton and I came on and recorded with you guys, I think in mid-September. And even then, I mean, I mean, you guys asked us point blank, like, you know, every asset class is historically expensive at this point, obviously, <laughs> just because of the accommodative um, you know, monetary policy that, that we've been in for, um, you know, 18 months at that point. And um, so that was about, I guess that was about a month and a half before the market really peaked. But but yeah, so optionality was, was very, very expensive at that point. Uh, and I, I kind of ran some math and, and went back and looked in the NASDAQ through, the NASDAQ peaked in early November, I think it was November 8th. And it had compounded at 35% annualized for three years, going from, um, you know, November 2018 wow. through November 2021, which is like, 10 to 12 years of normal compounding, especially in an index, right? And <laughs> yeah. so then like, kind of the chronology from there, there was a big CPI reading, I think November 9th, which kind of surprised people. It was kind of one of the first big inflation um, you know, surprises to yeah. the upside. And, and that's when you really saw the more, um, I, don't, I don't want to call them speculative, but definitely higher priced um, you know, growth assets. And then also crypto coincided with this also peaking at that, at that point, partly because just mathematically, if you're discounting back, you know, a company where you think they're going to start generating cash flow in 2032 at a higher discount rate, just the, the impact on the value of the asset is, is very different than if you're discounting a company that's going to generate a lot of cash between now and the end of the decade. And so, and so I think what's really kind of thrown some people off with the way the market has acted is actually the NASDAQ was relatively strong through the end of last year. But under the covers, there was all this carnage from growth stocks um, really getting you know taken to the woodshed. And there's a lot of stats on this. The, the, most, the latest I could find was as of 
It was as of January 14th, um, 36% of the stocks in the NASDAQ were down more than 50%, 5-0, which is like a full-on crash, right? I mean, that's like not too far <laughs> out of the, the realm of the dot-com bust. In some ways, this is like a hidden crash. Um, and and at, at that point, the index was only off 15%, you know, and so what was propping up the index was companies, uh, was, was the mega caps like Apple and Microsoft and Google that were holding in relatively well in, in the world of network effects and these platforms just getting bigger and bigger, um, you know, the, the large platforms make up a larger percentage of the index. And so you can have this weird disconnect where actually people look at the NASDAQ and they're like, even at this point, I mean, the NASDAQ is down 15% from the peak in November. That doesn't feel nearly as bad as when you look at stocks the, that are down yeah. 60 to 80% in a handful of months. I mean, just the, the reaction has been um, pretty severe. And so I think that's, I think why some people are scratching their heads, kind of saying to, to your, your broader question, Ben, like, what is going on here? Well, I have two, I, I'm curious, I would love your guys' take on, um, there's two things that are going on now that d- don't quite make sense to me, and and I'd love your your thoughts on them. Maybe you particularly, John, because I think they both relate to semis in, in a lot in a lot of ways. Um, one that I think is more broadly is, there's this assumption that seems to be baked in, Ben, you said it, I think, without thinking about it a minute ago, that the situation with growth tech stocks seems feels like it was back in the bubble crash era. You said these companies are unprofitable, not generating cash flow. That's just simply not true for many of these companies. Like they are profitable. They are generating strong cash flow. I look at Zoom. Like Zoom is like a cash flow monster. I mean, look and at Coinbase. It's gotten whacked. Or Coinbase. Coinbase is trading at 4x, you know, last 12 months free cash flow. Like, that's insane. Like, that's a cigar butt stock in Ben Graham terms. Um, what, what, obviously, there are, like, there's the Rivians and stuff of the world where, like, yeah, there's, there's no, you know, cash flow in sight. But there are plenty of these companies that are lumped into growth that also are producing cash flow. So what, what do you guys take about, about that? Yeah, I mean, it's actually funny that we were talking about this, um, this is like the first big downturn in, especially in the kind of the, in the NASDAQ and in tech that I can remember where semis haven't led the market down. Like usually when like <laughs> volatility is elevated and people are uncertain about the economy, semis are one of the first asset classes to, to get sold. And they've actually held in relatively well. I think in part, I think we talked about this a little bit when, when Britain and I were on, but there were amazing companies in semiconductor land trading at, um, you know, 20 times earnings or even lower than market oh multiples, yeah. um, you know, last year. And so I do think you have to separate those from, um, you know, from more optionality where, where companies are further out on the profitability or f- further from being profitable, I would say. And then I do think there's also a little bit of like a baby with the bathwater dynamic, just when, you know, when growth starts selling off, I don't think people, maybe some investors are discerning like what's hyper profitable or what's not in, in kind of growth software land. But I think this, this has just spawned a general rotation in the market where investors are saying, you know, if interest rates are going up, I don't want to own growth software at all. I want to own energy and I want to own financials and, you know, be exposed to interest rate sensitive um, asset classes. And I, I think that's part of the reason the turmoil has also felt so um, kind of disorienting is, is the, um, you know, the S&P is only down 9% also because, you know, some of these other pockets of the economy and of, of the market are, are working um, relatively well. And I should just say like just the, the precursor for all this or the disclaimer for Brad and I is we're not like market technicians and not like macro <laughs> right, experts. Right. This is just what we see day to day. And we do send around a lot of data points just because this is a really unique time for the market. Um, but we spend 99% of our time analyzing stocks and businesses, kind of a similar approach that, that you guys take. Um, but but we do obviously live this stuff every day. And so it's interesting that um, every, every market cycle is a little yeah. bit different. It's certainly a complex adaptive system. 
Uh, well, that's the perfect tee up for then my second question of something that's not adding up for me right now is, and I think this is particularly evident in semis. Um, if it truly is inflation fears and remodeling discount rates that are whacking, you know, growth stocks and so much of what all we look at right now, um, isn't like an assumption, another assumption baked into that is that these companies aren't going to raise prices as much as inflation. And yet, like <laughs> we've seen with TSMC, obviously in semiconductors, but you know, I think plenty of tech companies, you know, Zoom, Tesla, like Tesla could raise prices 20K. They have been raising prices 10K, 20K on all their models and it won't affect demand a bit. Uh, there's a lot of pricing power, I think, baked into these companies, latent pricing power that they haven't exploited yet. Do you guys think about that when you're looking at companies? I mean, having pricing power is a sign of relatively healthy industry dynamics, I would say. And so uh, t semis are a great example because, you know, in years past or decades past, they basically had to just sell whatever they could sell at, at whatever, you know, price the market was um, willing to take at that point. And now with the industry being consolidated, and I think that the, the industry overall is providing more value, that um, they have plenty of ability to pass on price. I mean, we don't want to you know, own companies that are screwing their customers on price. But um, if their inputs are cost, or input costs are going up, we've seen that over the last two cycles, actually, they, they can um, raise price. But I think what you have to the, the offset a little bit, just to keep in mind, is at some point, the price to the end consumer is increasing, and you do have some element of demand destruction. And so it's hard to mm -hmm. know, you know, if if the price of an iPhone goes from you know a thousand bucks to a thousand and fifty, or do people trade down? Maybe they buy last year's model, or they they buy less memory. And so I do think there is like some state of end demand um, destruction whenever you have increases in input costs. But but it's a good point. I think whenever the industry is um, is relatively healthy, then you should be able to pass on um, you know pass on price increases, and that's that's something that we do. I think I think look for. There's I mean I think there's um pricing is interesting the the just to add maybe some examples to it because it can cut it can cut both ways so um in to, so let's take two examples for the last couple of years um two companies that whose businesses i think got stronger as a result of the pandemic would be amazon and netflix so although it turns out we're still on about the same trajectory for e-commerce as we would have been had there not been a pandemic which is a little bit counterintuitive but it's one of those things that just went up and actually came back down but amazon's gotten much stronger, right? So they've, I, I'm going to get the stack off a little bit. I think they spent more on CapEx in the last couple of years than they had spent in like the prior decade or two decades. And so they basically said, oh, Jeff wrote that amazing letter at the beginning of the pandemic, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, buckle up, I think is what he said. Yeah. Here's something crazy that's happening. Let's take advantage of it. And so they are facing extreme inflation in their supply chain and their own logistics but I don't believe they've raised the price on Prime mm. membership. Now, as soon as I say that, they'll probably maybe they'll come out and <laughs> and push a price increase through. And they've done increases on it in the past, but it's not that terribly steady. And so here's somebody who's using price as a weapon to basically say we're going to get stronger. We're not going to raise prices because um, that actually puts more pressure on our our competition. Netflix, on the other hand, is raising prices. Um, they tend to do it every couple of years, and they just announced a pretty big price increase right as their subscribers were slowing down. And you might say, well, that's like a little bit strange. And so I think you've got to say like, well, what is the price of the service relative to its value? And if the prices mm -hmm. of Netflix is sort of uh, well below its value to the consumer, I don't, I don't know that it is. I think that would maybe 
I would speculate that's their thinking, that they're facing inflation. You know, the the scarcity of talent in Hollywood is is fairly extreme right now. Um, the rising costs of of getting production done, and so as the industry goes from in the U.S. from uh, the U.S. studios from 100 billion to 115 billion in spending this year on content, um, a big chunk of that is just purely inflation. It's not necessarily making a lot more shows, and so Netflix is saying. We think our service is worth more. We're underpricing it. I suspect this is their framework. And so we're going to raise price. And so it's just these different ways of thinking about price. We think about price in aggregate from, you know, our firm is called NZS, which stands for non-zero sum. And we want to make sure that if a company's raising price, that they're providing more value than the amount of price that they've raised. If they raise prices by a dollar, the consumer is getting hopefully more than a dollar in value or their ecosystem is getting more than a dollar in value. So that's where pricing can, I think, cut both ways in terms mm. of a sign of strength or creating this, you know, you, you could also argue, I might argue both sides of the Netflix price increase, which is, well, they're creating this big umbrella, um, which makes all of their competition look more attractive or allows their competition to also raise prices, which is going to make their competition stronger and have more money to spend on content. And so now Disney Plus can raise prices and HBO Max can raise prices and they can take that price increase and go pay more to, to directors right. and writers and, 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 uh, and actors. As you think about big tech, where do these companies fall? And to be more specific, Meta... Amazon, Apple, Google, Microsoft, where do they fall at this point in their trajectory as a resilience bet or an optionality bet? And then let's think about the companies that aren't quite at that level, but are these high growth, high cash flow, high market cap tech companies that are sort of nearing that that realm. Where do you guys kind of draw the line on what's resilience and what's optionality? Uh, maybe I can start with this, John, do a couple of these and you can jump in on a couple of other ones. Um, they really are, although they're sort of lumped together, like for us, they're very different situations. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, Microsoft largely driven by its strength of growing, you know, IT wallet share in the enterprise uh, is just a, a strong network effect business that seems to get stronger every day that, that goes by. Um, you know, Alphabet is in a similar position in terms of the strength of its business. And, you know, we look at sort of the non-zero-sum uh, offering from Microsoft and Alphabet. We think it's really high. We think their users are getting a lot more value than what they're charging for those services, even though it's might be a little counterintuitive. Microsoft yeah. products aren't exactly cheap. But if you look at what you're spending as an enterprise and what the enterprise is getting for those, I think the value proposition is very high. And, of course, Google, most of their products are free to consumers. Um and then, uh, you know, so I, th I think that's our, our biggest angle that we like to look for is this concept of non-zero sum and, and to what extent is the management team and the business adaptable to whatever crazy changes are going to happen in the world. And so then I think it gets a, a little bit different um, when we branch out, go beyond those two in terms of these mega caps and, you know, Facebook, it's like we don't need to rehash sort of what are like the potential negatives around social networking, but it's not totally clear that they're creating more value than they're taking for themselves. And so that that's mm -hmm. one, it's a stock we, we haven't owned in a, in a long time. Um, and so we sort of look at these individually. And then, John, I don't know if you want to touch on Apple or any of the other, the ones in that. Yeah, I, mean, I would just generally say if companies, most companies, especially when you get like over the 1.5 trillion threshold, maybe, <laughs> um, I think they've gotten to, kind of to the point where they are resilient. And like, what, I guess the two things that we 
are thinking about. One is like, do they have power law economics? Like we talked about this um, when we were on in September of of his of Canada Company. I mean, Apple's obviously the canonical example. Like they have whatever it is, twenty five percent unit share of the smartphone market, but they've got ninety eight percent share of the profits in the market. And so I, I would say at that point, it's a resilient business. Like they've built the ecosystem around it. Like the argument from five years ago that they're going to be the next Nokia or Samsung or BlackBerry or whatever it is, I, I think, is obviously um, had had cold water thrown on it. Um, and then we do think about the range of outcomes. Like Tesla is a different example because um, they're approaching a trillion dollars in market cap, or at least they were. <laughs> they were, um, yeah. <laughs> and that's, I mean, I, I would say the like where Tesla is, at, both in transportation and in other businesses in five to 10 years, like the range of outcomes on that is still relatively wide. And yeah. so that's one where um, that would still be like pure optionality for us. And then another one, just one that you didn't ask about, but I think is interesting is something like NVIDIA, uh, where we actually owned it as a resilient position for a long time. And then um, last fall, just with the, uh, the the stretch in valuations we were seeing and a lot of growth tech and NVIDIA was a candidate um, of this one where it got to an $800 billion market cap. So basically we were playing for it getting to a, a trillion dollar market cap, but they have um, I think they have 25 billion in sales, and I think if they get to you know 50 to 75 billion dollars in sales, maybe they they deserve to be a trillion dollar company. But it just seemed like they were pulling in that trillion dollar threshold by like five years, and so that's when we actually moved it over to optionality. Yeah, it um, seems like at that point you could say the business has resilience in it, but where the price is, your investment doesn't feel resilient anymore. Exactly. Yeah, and I, I think for a resilient position, we need we need both. We need valuation to be relatively resilient um, and we need the business to be resilient and have an ecosystem. And, and so that that's, that's a, a rare example where we actually took something down from resilience to optionality based on valuation levels alone. One of the things we'd like to think about on, on valuation is, is that valuation is, is telling you what the prediction is and whether it has to be right. And so a very highly valued business is telling you that um, the prediction it has to be this and it has to be right. Oftentimes it's like a parlay bet. It's like you have to get, you know, this, 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 and this all have to happen in that sequence yeah. in order for this valuation to work. And we try to, we sort of view that more as purely gambling and we try and avoid those. It's a very low margin of safety in the kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Parlay. So this is kind of our, and we have this white paper called redefining margin of safety that's out there on our website. And so if the valuation is lower, then I can basically, I don't, sometimes I don't have to be right about anything. I only have to be right yeah. about this very safe thing. Like, you know, one of our safest predictions we have on our, at our firm is that electronics are going to push deeper into the world. It's like the most basic thing I think <laughs> I could hopefully get everybody to agree with. And, and, you know, that John talks about all the time. And, you know, if you believe that to be true, and then you look at the valuation of some of these companies that are enabling that, you're not being forced to say this company is going to win this whole market and the market has to grow and I have to get all the timing right. And so we're, we're always looking for things where the valuation is not forcing us to make these very precise predictions about the future, which we know we're going to have a very low hit rate on. Yeah. Fascinating. It's interesting thinking about how something, because it gets so overbought can become an optionality position even even if you bought it originally because it was resilient yeah i think that's those are relatively rare for us because um honestly if it's something sometimes we would just sell the position and be fine and we would revisit that down the road but nvidia is a really special company that we feel like we want to own for for 10 years um and there's still a ton of optionality in the stock from i mean like Thank God, this, this, the, the metaverse conversation had not started when we recorded in September. But like, wh- whether you layer on metaverse, autonomous driving, I mean, there's a lot of amazing optionality um, with, I would say, the most creative leader um, in, in 
semiconductors and, and probably one of the most creative leaders in, in all of tech um, at NVIDIA. But at the same time, to Brad's point on the predictions, it's like you have to have cloud spending, you know, sustained for the next few years and have zero digestion. You have to have gaming demand be off the charts. So you have to have zero semiconductor cycles with no inventory issues, which, which um, is, is very possible even at a, a growth company like NVIDIA. And so that's why I felt like the, the prediction had gotten pretty narrow. And so we um, made the decision to bring it down. I, th- I think it's worth making a point overall on why do we have all these trillion dollar companies or these companies that could be trillion dollar companies. And it, I think it comes back to a lot of the things we see and learn from complex adaptive systems around power laws, around increasing returns, around network effects. And I think one of the things we don't, you know, when the market is panicking and sort of trying to find a, uh, a point of stability, the thing you want to keep in mind is we're still very early in this analog to digital transition of the global economy. And, as we see industries go from analog to digital, there's certain characteristics that lend themselves towards these power laws and these network mm. effects. And so Tesla is an interesting example of that, where it's like automotive is one of the most fragmented global industries that, you know, complicated global industries that I can think of. And the car is becoming much more about software and data than about, you know, everything else that, that it historically was about. And the software data and the way that it's distributed and the way it's serviced and sort of part of it becoming a subscription. And so you you could speculate as that happens, we might see a power law around, you know, data network effects or or software network effects in cars where we won't have 40 companies around the world all with a small amount of share, or we won't have four or five companies that that dominate. There might only be one, two, or three if it if it were to follow this pattern we have seen in other industries that have gone from analog to digital. And so that's where this potential comes in for these big businesses. And then of course the the tension that pushes back on that is is government and and regulatory and the governments around the world are really really not finding their footing in terms of how they want to treat these information age monopolies. <laughs> they're they're using these sort of very like in, industrial age playbooks to try and um regulate an information-based business. And so we just have no sort of no real view of how that's going to play out or whether they're going to be successful or, or take the right strategy on it. Could you tell us sort of what are your your few, you know, sort of big tent theses ideas? That, you know, Brad, like you mentioned, like electronics continuing to push deeper into the world feels something that like, you know, the proverbial all sides of the aisle can probably agree on. Do you have others? Yes, yeah, the most basic one is we're going through an analog to digital transition in the economy. I don't you can pick a number, but it's probably less than 10% in terms of how we transition, whether it's in, you know, digital payments is part of that. We think, you know, more payments are going to be done digitally than with, you know, cash or checks or however you want it, just the old way of of doing it. Um, you know, we talked about semiconductors really being the foundation of this pushing electronics deeper into the world and really being, you know, we think some of the most important companies in the world to accomplish that. And of course, on top of semiconductors is software and cloud. And it's like, you would think more things are going to go from, you know, running on premises to running in the cloud. Uh, You know, connectivity is going to increase more things. You know, if it can be connected, it will be connected. Uh, So that's around sort of the rollout of, of, of wireless networks and wireless capacity and spectrum and, and everything around the world. And then you sort of take, I think those foundational, concepts and then you say okay well then what's happening in uh industrial companies how are they leveraging this sort of digital t- you know digitalization what's happening in healthcare and financials so healthcare and financials 
are the toughest ones to go digital because they're so highly regulated. And part of that's for good reason. And part of it's just sort of bureaucratic. But, you know, we look at healthcare and financials and we say, gosh, we wish we were so much further ahead in, you know, the digitalization of these two industries. But the government, it just keeps in the sort of the, the industrial, the sort of the regulatory bodies just sort of keep pushing back. Um, uh, and, and, and that whole complex just sort of pushing back on, on progress there. So, but, but in the industrial sector, we're seeing a lot of the stuff. You know, Tesla is a great example of a sort of a classic analog industrial business that's becoming very, very digital. And then, and then we look for what happens when things go digital and get transformed and they tend to become more vertically integrated. You know, data tends to become more important. Uh, you sort of see, see the sort of patterns that emerge as, as a business um, goes digital. But, but it's really just this idea of, this, what's an analog behavior that's becoming digital? So like, like Chipotle is an example here in the US, the, the burrito chain. And, you know, th- here's a company that was doing well in terms of transitioning to digital ordering before the pandemic, but took the pandemic as an opportunity to like lean really heavily into to digitally transforming their business all the way to the point where they're it's now using- It's a great experience. Yeah, like, yeah, I it really is, right? Multiple times a week. And yeah. it's, it's the same way that like Star- Starbucks is now a nearly completely digital experience for me. Absent the eight seconds I spend in the store, Chipotle has become exactly the same thing. Yeah, so these are great examples of companies adapting to digital technology early, which gives them this advantage over everyone else they compete with who's not doing that. And the bigger and the better they get at doing that, the more it affords them to run their business better and take more share. And so, you know, Chipotle is going all the way to installing machine vision cameras with, with AI and algorithms to monitor, you know, whether they need more or less guacamole at different times a day at each store level, you know, at each day of the week. And so that's something that, you know, maybe that won't end up being that useful in terms of, you know, avocado waste over time. But it's something that is this, this idea of taking, you know, what goes into that, like a lot, like, you know, image sensors and semiconductors and software and cloud, and then, you know, the feedback loop down to the stores, and how you communicate that, and then how that rolls into your supply chain, and all of that. And so that's just, you know, that that's why when like, the market gets sort of scared about interest rates are going up a little bit, we're like, you know, we sort of like start to, to get excited, because like, we're just so early in some of these really incredible trends. It's Buffett tap dancing to work in down markets. Whether Chipotle, you know, wins or doesn't win or what have you, you know, like whether Chipotle is a position for you guys or not, like I'm pretty sure TSMC and TI and Sony and NVIDIA, like Chipotle may or may not win or, you know, McDonald's may or may not win. It did like, but Ooh, like David, they're, they're going to do well. You're teeing up a question that I've been noodling on ever since our NZS special earlier this year. So John, question for you. I have had a strong, strong desire to just probably not liquidate everything in my portfolio, but take all net new cash and exclusively allocate it to the semiconductor ecosystem. So this would be everything from like the EDA companies, the chip design software, the fabulous actual chip design companies like your um, NVIDIA's, those types of companies, equipment manufacturers like ASML, foundries like TSMC. And I'm so convinced that the next 50 years, a lot of the value creation comes from those companies. I mean, it's going to underpin, like, basically all value creation in the world are going to come from advances in semiconductors and things people build on top of them, or an enormous amount of it. But what's the, where does this fall down in terms of 
sure, how sure of a thing it is that they'll be able to capture uh, a, a proportionate share of that value. Um, I'm excited that you are so excited to uh, invest your, <laughs> your personal capital in the semi-industry. Um, there, there's a few things. I mean, one, one is there are amazing companies outside of semiconductors, like it's a big part of our portfolio, but actually the majority of what we own is, is non-semi, even though we talk about semis a lot and we tend to. Um, I mean, I guess the, the scenarios where semis kind of break down for whatever reason over the next 10 years is, it's honestly harder on like a 10-year horizon, I would say. But if we either hit the wall with Moore's Law, where we just like literally, you know, despite all the you know, thousands of PhDs in physics and material science and optics and everyone, you know, putting their heads together to solve one of the most important, you know, economic drivers in, in human history. I mean, if we get to a scenario where uh, we really just have hit the wall, um, then that will be a problem. And obviously, like, especially companies that are exposed to the leading edge, like TSMC or ASML, um, will, will suffer. Um, I mean, one scenario that we actually contemplated a lot more five or six years ago is, is there was kind of an idea of like, what, what are we going to use all these chips for? You know, like when we were talking about <laughs> seven nanometer and five nanometer, like six or seven years ago with ASML, it really was not obvious that they, we were like, well, Qualcomm and Apple will, will design really amazing silicon for smartphones and like Intel will like, make amazing yeah. PC chips. But like at some point, PCs kind of got good enough. Like no one really cares about their the performance in their PC anymore. You care about battery life and um, the display and honestly the form factor and other things. Or maybe if it's a gaming rig, you know, you care about um, performance a little more. Um, but, but now I feel like with the data center, with everything being connected, um, with Chipotle putting machine vision in their stores or like John Deere putting, you know, machine vision on, on tractors for precision ag- agriculture, it just seems like a no brainer that the secular trend is there. And then there is just like push and pull in the near term. We're coming off of, um, you know, an incredibly strong recovery out of the COVID downturn. And this is, this parallels a little bit with the recovery from the GFC, uh, just that, you know, when you have times of shortages, generally um, companies will customers of semiconductors will eventually overorder, and um, you know it's like the way people buy toilet paper in shortages, right? Like it's, it's like a psychological thing. No matter how sophisticated people are, they will always kind of buy more than they need, and so there's definitely some risk over the next eighteen months that we have some sort of an inventory correction because things have been running really hot. We're building a lot of fabs. Customers can't get their hands on on you know certain components, um, but I, I do feel like people that are focused on the 12 to 18 month potential for a correction are kind of missing the forest for the trees, especially given the business models and semiconductors are so amazing that like these companies aren't going to lose money. If we have, even if we have a substantial downturn, like no one's going to lose money in the, in the top of the food chain. Um, and they'll just, they'll buy back stock and they'll get through it. And the amazing thing about semiconductors is like, you know, the world needs them. You're not going to have a five year downturn in semis. You could have a seven quarter downturn, which would tie the longest downturn in the history of the industry. But it's not like, you know, material like it's not like copper pricing or oil and gas where you just like have no idea when it's going to recover like there's kind of trend line demand for semis and that trend line is probably going up um and so that's the way i would i would think about it but i I do appreciate your point especially the way the industry is consolidated like semiconductors we think are as well positioned as any part of the economy to capture a lot of value in in, as the economy goes digital and and just to underscore so i don't sound like a raving lunatic like there's the obvious stuff that's going to (laughs) benefit from semis like the next smartphone generation and but like every tech trend people talk about is predicated on semiconductor advances people talk about like uh, autonomous driving i mean that's that's really semiconductor development and machine learning development on top of it machine learning development is semis getting better so that it can process data in this way all of crypto 
the whole metaverse. Like that's just a whole bunch of really sophisticated and specialized chips. And then the incredible amount of software that needs to be built on top. And of course, all the new stuff with vision, by the way, all this new stuff with vision and screens for the metaverse as it arrives, also going to be semis. But then you look at like Brad, your point about Chipotle, all these edge devices that are monitoring the guacamole and making sure that that, you know, we efficiently uh, create the amount of guacamole that we consume out here in consumer land, like also semis. It's just probably you never have too much guacamole. You know, <laughs> you know, larger nanometer versions of them. But I just, it, it it's just, everything I can think about that is like big waves of net new value creation in the world does seem to be built on top of that. Yeah, I think that's. I mean, you're obviously preaching the choir. Um, but I think. <laughs> um, I, I think just like what you're seeing in the market right now is just this push and pull of like, I think the secular trend has really, I mean, I think it's actually gotten better, you know, post COVID just with the acceleration of digitization of the economy. Um, and also just with shortages and everyone is kind of realizing like you can't build anything without semiconductors. And it's so critical to the automotive industry, to industrials, to, you know, the cloud guys, to um, smartphone companies, obviously like kind of down the chain. And so I, I think the, the, cuteness that you're seeing in the market is people are like, I love the 10 year, but I'm worried about the 18 months. You know, mm-hmm. I think that creates a lot of opportunity for individual investors or for people with a longer time horizon. Um, because there are a lot of amazing companies, especially building blocks of the kind of digital economy and, and building blocks of semiconductors that are trading at, you know, 18 times earnings in, in a market where growth investing is still relatively expensive. And so to me, that just seems like um, kind of a mismatch, but you know, we could be very wrong over 18 months or three years, like we never know. But uh, it certainly just seems like the industry is well set up to capture a significant amount of value. And, and I kind of keep harping on this point, but like, I think the business models and semiconductors are still not appreciated that if you go from EDA software from cadence and synopsis to semiconductor capital equipment, like LAM research or KLA Corp or ASML to TSMC, obviously is one of the best business models in the world. Um, analog companies like Texas instruments, like all these companies are phenomenally profitable and like profitable through the cycle. Now I just feel like you're kind of your, your grandfather's semiconductor industry where there were these crazy boom busts and companies, you know, um, were losing money at the bottom of the cycle and had to raise capital and things like that. I mean, outside of memory, which is different because it's still a pure commodity everywhere else. You're just going to see companies making a lot of money for a long time. And maybe it's one year they're down 7% and have 35% operating margins instead of 40% operating margins. But you know, the, the trend is definitely, um, in our favor. I think it's interesting to get some, also some historical perspective. And we think about these like engines of growth for the economy. And so it's always good when markets are volatile to try and like broaden out and get as much as perspective as you can. And so we think about going back to sort of the last few hundred years of capitalism. And it's like, we've had these engines of economic growth and productivity increases, whether it's sort of like the early industrial automation, you know, coal, uh, railroads, um, the, the, the sort of creation of the modern um, banking system, uh, oil, um, and then and then we sort of move into the 20th century, and they have those semiconductors, and then the information age really I think would sort of gets going in earnest around around um, around 40 years ago as the PC sort of sort of became this you know more more practical tool that could have a lot more users, and then we went to smartphones. And so we just sort of step back and we look at this sort of technology as this engine of economic growth and productivity. And obviously, so we think semiconductors and software are at, at the base of that. And, you know, we, we, you know, the other big, this fear in the market right now around inflation is, you know, legitimate. Some of this, some of these 
factors are going to you know possibly be structural most or transitory around this excess capital we talked about being put into the system but what is the the thing that is always deflationary over the last 300 years mm-hmm. of kind of modern capitalism has been technology that sort of whole list that i just went through are all sort of different forms of technology and so we know the best cure for inflation to the extent it is structural if there's a structural labor shortage or something else that happens uh, you know, if there's just structural food inflation because of drought, because of global warming, whatever it is that's coming at us, we know the the way humans will solve it because because we're super innovative as a species. That's why we're still here is through technology, and so that's what we're always looking for. Is like what are these engines of engines of you know, engines of growth, and in this case, I think really engines of productivity and engines of um, deflationary pressure over time. Can you speak actually a little more on what? Because uh, I, 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 uh, about deflationary aspects of technology and tech companies, I've heard a lot of people talking about this. You know, I think I know what it means, but I'd love to hear like your uh, your perspective on well, like, like how do you define uh, a technology company, so a company being deflationary and in, in what it does? Well, if you think about just constantly getting more for less, you know, and 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 so what does your phone do today that it didn't do a year ago or 10 years ago and 10 years ago or a little over 10 years ago we didn't have smartphones we had we had dumb phones um that we just text or maybe do rudimentary email on and you just think about this you know where what what was that what was doing that function before in some cases it was it's a new function we just this is something we couldn't do before that we can do now Um, And in some cases, it's displacing something that was done usually in a less automated more manual more expensive way. And so I think this is the this is basically coming back to, to, to Moore's law, but to use it not just as the technical semiconductor way, but as a sort of the broader, um, you know, the, the broader sort of looser analogy to the economy overall is uh, being able to get more for less as, as time progresses. And you see this technology as this really, you know, I say de- deflationary, but certainly disinflationary or sort of this anti-inflationary force pushing back on um, where we might have these otherwise have these pockets of inflation. And so we look at like energy right now, which has been, you know, actually a, a, a good segment of the market as the high growth stocks have pulled back and we've had these energy shortages and we're, we're sort of as a, as a global society mismanaging the transition to green energy by not investing enough in, in fossil fuels to sort of smooth that over. And so you've got energy prices are up a lot. And we think about, okay, so we have this inflation from energy. How are we going to solve that? Well, we can solve it technologically by maybe finding fossil fuels more cheaply, or the, I think the preferred method would be to sort of to sort of go green energy globally. And who knows how long that'll take, but let's say it's 50 years into the future. We're probably largely transitioned to a completely green energy uh, economy and we've got sort of storage for that energy as well for to, to handle the fluctuations that we get from from sources of green energy and so uh, so this is an example of like what, what I think will be a very deflationary trend so energy is a large input cost in the economy uh, over time we're essentially not going to free energy but we're going to this much more efficient and cheaper and more renewable form of energy. And so that's really deflationary over time to a big input in into pricing. You also have, um, you know, labor automation as a big tailwind. I mean, like the huge examples, obviously, are like bank tellers and travel agents and these, you know, categories of employment just, just don't exist anymore because they've been, they've been digitized. And in the past, we honestly, 
Um, there's been so much focus on automation over the last 10 years, and it felt a little bit low NZS. Like, I, I don't think it's great to just be trying to, you know, get rid of people, like, get the, for Uber to get rid of the guy in the front seat, because you want to automate his, his job out of, the, uh, out, of the, out of the process just to, um, you know, boost your profitability. But now that we're in a position or in a situation where we have, like, pretty severe labor, labor shortages in the U.S., that this becomes, like, the obvious solution. And I think it is about kind of a higher NZS solution. So like, you know, automated ordering at McDonald's using AI is, is a good example. But even we were reviewing a software company yesterday and the, the software platform costs, you know, $30,000 a year for SMBs and smaller enterprises. And it can allow them to, um, you know, eliminate eventually one or two like CPAs in the um, FP&A, you know, department that probably cost the company $400,000 a year, you know? And so, so I just feel like there's so many examples, whether it's software or automation, where um, you can kind of remove a little bit of the burden that, um, you know, labor imposes on, on companies. And that's a huge driver of deflation also. It seems like it's kind of that fundamental definition of technology where technology enables a person to be more productive. So you can sort of get more value out of less labor. And so... Of course, that has all sorts of negative implications if, if you know, that transition happens too fast or if it happens on a micro basis where you automate yourself out of a job or anything like that. But if the definition of inflation is it costs more to get the same value, then technology seems definitionally to allow you to get more value for less input cost. So all, that's, is all technology investing deflationary? Um, I probably don't want to say, I want to say yes, but I probably don't want to say that because I'll think of, as soon as we, <laughs> as soon as we're done talking, I'll think of, think of examples where that's not true. Um, <laughs> no, I think that's right. I mean, we do think, and we, when we think about s- structurally, um, I'm sort of like a nut on demographics. And so I'm always looking at how wrong the global population models are. And if you take actual current current fertility and birth rates, um, you kind of look at the movement of people around the world, which is slowing down. So there's so, so a lot less immigration uh, from developing markets to developed countries. And you look at it and you look actually, you're actually very close to seeing global, not global, developed market population in aggregate, uh, certainly not growing anymore and in a lot of cases declining. And so, but we still want the economy to grow because we know that through Capitalism and economic growth is the best way to lift everybody up. And of course, there's a whole like a can of worms around how that's also creating a lot of inequality. So I'm not, I'm not saying that that's okay. I'm just saying there's, we know that the, the bottom goes up and the, the top is going up even faster, but everybody's lifting up faster. And so we want to keep growth going because there, you know, we don't want to have too much growth or hyper growth, but we want to have some amount of growth. And so if you're not doing it through, through, the growth in the number of people who are consuming, you know, the growth in population to reduce a human down to a sort of a unit of consumption in the economy, um, then you've got to do it through other ways. And so productivity gains are a great way to do that. And so you can even see, so right now we're in this labor shortage, which we think is actually fairly structural. It was probably accentuated by the pandemic, but it had started before the pandemic. And it has a lot to do with immigration and birth rates, birth rates being down 20 years ago, which is not something we can go back and fix without a time machine. And, and immigration being down starting around four years ago, certainly for the US, also true for some other developed markets. And so we have to, we have to, now we have to solve this with technology. We're sort of faced with a, we would like to, but now we actually have to, if we want to keep that engine of productivity and that engine of growth going. And so I think, you know, technology, you know, we don't have humanoid robots yet. It'll be a long time before we 
we have that 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 sort of concept that out of sci-fi and ultimately like in the long run this feels like a good thing right like the uh you know again ben to your point like uh there are negative consequences when these things move too fast but that like lots of people have better alternatives than taking jobs at uh labor intensive jobs at chipotle uh that they would rather do instead feels like a good thing right (laughs) Yeah, and I don't, I don't want to generalize and, and <laughs> yeah, because you know, right. I, I know a lot of people make value are, judgments here. But. Yeah, a lot of people are also did lose a job that they can't get back because of the pandemic, and so each individual's scenario is different. But I do think in aggregate that that's right. And so, may, what is it? What do we think about? Well, ten or twenty years from now, maybe it means working three or four days a week is a full time job, you know, because of we have these sort of enhancements or productivity offsets, and so. Uh, it's it's just you know there's there's a lot of different ways it can play out, but this is sort of an interesting one because I think it is population growth and labor availability is a really important input into the you know overall economy for for everything we look at. Let me switch gears uh, for this this segment of the conversation. I'm curious, given the volatility and corrections going on in the last month, what is hard about your work right now? What are the really difficult decisions and difficult things to carry out? And and what are the easy things? What's hard is is just honestly just the outcomes are unknowable in terms of like how long this correction can last. Like is this a year? Is it six weeks? I mean just there's really no way you can go back and say, oh well like the correction in the Nasdaq in Q4 of 2018 in the last taper tantrum was only one quarter and so we should be off to the races and you know, six weeks. So that I would say is, um, is the most difficult. I think the easiest thing for us to do is, is just to focus on the companies and, um, and our research and just think about companies that you want to own for five to 10 years where you have a reasonable starting point. And then the, the, I think the benefit that we have from having worked together for a long time and having, having executed this playbook is it is kind of like muscle memory for us that we have we had a lot of resilience in the portfolio at the end of last year I think um, you know intentionally set up for this kind of a scenario and so the muscle memory of selling our resilient positions even though they're businesses we love and they're down you know at, at, at least to some extent with the market um, to add back to optionality I think that is just like a team muscle memory thing we've built that has been um, you know mm-hmm. relatively easy and who knows, we also might be wrong. So it could be yeah. easy but wrong to just to, to qualify that statement. And this sounds obvious, but absent selling your resilient positions, you couldn't add to optionality positions in, unless you had like net new capital coming in in a big way where you could just keep your resilient positions the same and allocate to optionality. But still, positions. effectively, that would be selling because you're changing the balance. Right, of the right, right, right. Yeah. And we're also, um, I mean, we're, we're long only, so we don't you know have shorts on. We don't, we can't just go to cash. Like we do have to stay fully invested. And so that that is kind of the way we execute our, our mm. playbook is, is by beefing up resilience when optionality is, is very, very expensive. And then um, kind of harvest that, you know, when when the opportunities and optionality land present themselves. It is, I think, yeah. these psychological factors that are the hardest to overcome for all investors. And I think for everyone making business decisions as well. Um, so one of the things we think about is having um, uh, we've got a couple things that we say. One is you're, we're, we're never as smart as we look when stocks are going up and we're never as dumb as we feel when stocks are going down. And <laughs> another way to think about that is when stocks are going up, you want to have humility. And when stocks are going down, you want to have confidence in your process that 
and sort of um, and and, then, and yet another way of saying the same thing is that you want to have some skepticism when things are going well, um, and some some real optimism when things are going badly. And so that's what I think is this tension a lot of investors and decision makers have is like they're looking at the stock market, they're reading the headlines, you know, we're just bombarded with how bad things could be or are. But we know that's not how it works. We know over time that the optimists are always right. The cynics are always wrong. And that that, that, that can be um, flipped over the short term, but it's always true in the long term. And it comes back to, I think, really just the ingenuity and the innovation of, of humans and, and you know, knowing that we'll solve these problems. So it's sort of watching as bad as things are and going like, this makes me optimistic. That's a really hard <laughs> thing to get your yeah. brain to, yeah. to hold on to. Well, I think you said it a minute ago, so much of this that uh comes back to your time horizon i can't remember if we talked about john on the last episode about time horizon but uh whether we did or didn't i'll ask it here how do you guys think about time horizon in the portfolio and i guess maybe even a level up above that for nzs as a firm itself and you guys as its principles yeah i I guess i'll start on the portfolio part and and brad can maybe talk about the millennium that we want NZS to last for. Um, <laughs> but on our, on the portfolio, it's actually, it's, it's interesting. Um, it's actually in kind of our turnover numbers. So our, our turnover in the resilient part of the portfolio is 10%. So like implied in that is we basically own stocks for 10 years, give or take. Mm-hmm. And I think our, our time horizon there is, is like infinite. Like we, ba- we basically buy businesses we think we want to own, you know, for our entire investment, you know, careers. And then in optionality, it's the, the turnover, um, is 50%. And so we're not really playing for a two year time horizon there. It is, um, you know, we're just wrong a lot more. And so we do sell stocks more quickly and we try to fail, you know, fail fast versus just hold on to something and have it, um, you know, drag us down. But so I would say we generally have a little bit of a shorter time horizon in optionality land just because we have stocks on a shorter leash. Um, and, and there's just a range of a wider range of outcomes and we are wrong more, but I, I would say Everything we buy, we, we want to own for, um, you know, at least for the next 10 years. It's just a matter of, you know, things are more likely to play out that way in resilience. But the asymmetry is much higher if we are right in, in optionality. Yeah, I think that and there's this fractal degree to resilience and optionality. So we build the portfolio as resilient optionality. We want to invest in companies that we think have a resilient and optional element to them. We want to run NZS Capital having both resilient uh, elements and, and optionality elements. And, and we think this sort of, you know, we know this works best from all of the examples in the most um, sort of enduring systems and biological ecosystems are those that are able to balance this concept of resilience and, and optionality, which I think you guys talked about on the last the last um, podcast with us. And so when Brent and I started in ZS, we said, how do we build a resilient business, but also maintain optionality for the long term? And how do we attract great talent who want to want to come work for us and how do we attract great uh, you know investors who want to trust us with their their capital and so we try to structure our business so that um, from the start if if if, um, if it turns out three months after we started our fund we went into a global pandemic coincidentally um, that that we would be <laughs> still built to still be here and so that's that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different businesses it can mean keeping a certain amount of number of years of operating expenses on your balance sheet. It can mean partnering with somebody who who will be there uh, if, you, if you need um, something to, to get you through a difficult period. It can be structuring your product, which in our case is an investment portfolio, in such a way that it is also resilient. 
uh, or actually potentially more resilient than than the market, and and yet still sort of maintains the upside that that sort of we're looking for as investors, and we know our clients are looking for. And so we think it's it's a universal framework that applies to to a lot of things, but in particular the way businesses and and investment portfolios are structured. Yeah, I, I'm curious. Actually, you mentioned some of them, and, and maybe that that is the full answer. But I'm curious, what were the things in setting up NZS that that you you specifically did to try and uh, maximize to, to be resilient? I mean, I'm sure you guys have had long careers before NZS in the investment ecosystem and seen plenty of firms <laughs> blow up spectacularly or otherwise. Uh, so I, I'm curious how you thought about that. Yeah, well, and actually, I'd be, I'll give an answer, and then I'll be interested in John's answer because he's, he's he took a, a risk to uh, he and Joe took took a risk as did some other folks to come over and, and work for us. But I think the the where it starts is just the people. I mean, if you have people who can work together and trust each other and are also long term focused and talented, and are, and also internalize this concept of resilience and optionality, that's gonna you know that culture is gonna get you hopefully very far. Um, so that's sort of on the more in, maybe in, intangible side. More tangibly, we made sure the business was well capitalized. Um, we made sure the product was structured in a way that we were comfortable with and that we had experience running. Um, we sought a, an outside distribution partner um, to help us. You know, what, what we know is like we're good at a few things, and then who knows if we're good at anything else. And so the things we don't know if we're good at, like Brent and I. Um, you know, we've never run a company, so we don't just assume that we're going to be good at that. So we hired a great president um, who we worked with um, in the past for a long period of time. We have new new people we've brought on in operations that are really helpful. And we said, well, we don't know anything about selling. We're just investors. We don't know anything about sales and marketing. We don't particularly want to spend all of our time building that out. So we went and found this partner to do distribution for us. And it's just about making sure the things you're good at, which in our case is investment team culture, um, you know, putting a portfolio together and partnering with our clients and, and giving them the attention that that they need, make sure that we set it up so that that's where we're spending almost 100% of our time and we're not distracted by these other things. And I think that's that's just really important to, to, to building a business. Oh, man. No matter what, whether it's an investing business or any bit like... Yeah. <laughs> or a podcast 100%. business. Podcast business. <laughs> uh, was... Um, one specific question on that was the decision not to short and to be long only. Was that the major motivation for it being resilient? No, the the reason why we don't the shorting stocks is great for pe- for people who do that and are good at it and believe in it. But um, you know we're optimists, and if you're shorting stocks, you're you fundamentally have to take on a pessimist mentality. You have to believe something's going to fail. And things do fail. And so that's why that's yeah. totally viable. But I don't believe you can be both an optimist and a pessimist. And I think the sort of data bears out over time that optimism, um, I know the data bears out over time that optimism is the right side of that uh, coin to be on. And so I don't feel like you can effectively do both well. Or I mean, let me rephrase that. I don't feel like we can effectively do both well. I know there are investors out there who do who do both of those things well, but it's not something I think that... That, that we were good at. And I think, it, you know, Brenton and myself and John and Joe and our sort of DNA as investors doesn't, didn't train us to be good at, at that. And I think none, none of the four of us are inherently pessimistic. I think we're generally optimistic about things. To be like a little bit blunt, like we, 
I think the only reason for us to start a fund that was like long short and be, you know, be shorting stocks would be just to get higher fees and be able to charge clients more money. Um, and for us, that just seemed like kind of a low NZS way to approach the business. I think like we're not out to we're we're out to like build an amazing business and have everyone all constituencies do well. Um, but we're not out to build a like an empire with with crazy fees or anything. And so it, it does seem like at least for the way we invest, it's the highest NZS way that we can offer something to clients that we think is is reasonable. I love it. Well, that's a great place to close. Unless you have other closing thoughts, why don't I just ask you both, where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, you can find me on, on Twitter at, um, at jbathgate. And then um, my email is john at, at nzscapital.com. Or you can visit our, uh, our website at nzscapital.com. There's a lot of uh, content there. And you are at the intersection of two of the most vibrant we have learned through acquired aspects of uh, <laughs> communities of Twitter. FinTwit and, and Semiconductor and Semiconductor Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you guys actually contributed to that with the TSMC episode. There's like a lot more um, new Semiconductor fanboys since um, since <laughs> August of last year, whenever that episode came out. So um, it is, it's a lot of fun, actually. I've met some amazing people. So much fun. Um, it's a fun thing about actually doing something like NZS. We have, we still follow compliance guidelines, but we do have a little bit more runway to interact um, through social media and with, with other um, you know, individual investors, professional investors, engineers at companies um, that are all you know, talking about semis and other things on Twitter, which is a lot of fun. Yeah, and so we do, John mentioned the website, nzscapital.com. We keep all of our white papers there, an archive of the weekly newsletter, um, uh, sit all week, uh, and you can sign up for it through, through the website. And I'm um, on, on Twitter with very, varying degrees of activity here and there at, at Brad Sling, B-R-A-D-S-L-I-N-G. And so, yeah, we, we just, we love to interact with folks. We know that we get, um, you know, it's a little bit selfish. We actually get a lot of value, uh, probably more value than we, than we give out maybe, but we do try and publish everything. We're very transparent. We're, we're trying to educate folks. And I think the work that John and, and Brenton have done bringing the semiconductor industry more into the front of people's minds and educating them on that is a, you know, is an example of how we, how we try and run, run our business, um, and, and try and share as much as we can. I guess patently false that you get more value than you put it. Like I, I, I've read half of your white papers and every single one I'm like, well, that's a brand new paradigm that's changed my thinking. So I, you absolutely do not capture more value than you create with content. Anyway, Brad, John, thank you so much for the time. Thanks guys. Thanks for having us. It was, it was really fun. It's good to talk again, guys. So awesome. And David, uh, I suppose with that, We will see you next time.